York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. What happens when a legendary historian aims his keen eye in the rearview mirror of his own life, examining the places, people, and experiences that made him a great storyteller? Well, when that author is David Petrusha, the answer is the rich, funny, and poignant memoir, Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory, A Vanished World. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special welcome to everybody watching via YouTube. On our YouTube channel, you can see us bring this lost world of 1950s and 60s Amsterdam, New York, to life for you in multimedia splendor, thanks to film and photos from David Petrusha's personal archive. When a friend encouraged David to write his life story, he didn't think it was a good idea. But when he told me about that friend's idea, I thought it was a great one. What better way for everybody to get to know the man I've been fortunate to get to know? The man that's been called one of the greatest political historians of all time, and also the undisputed champion of chronicling presidential campaigns. He's always ready with a clever quip, which is probably due to his heroes, the Marx Brothers, or with a bit of wisdom from the past. David has written or edited a treasure trove of books over the years, and you've seen him on so many TV and radio shows that I can't even begin to list them here. He sat down with me to discuss four of his previous books, which you can see here over my shoulder. They are TR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and A Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. Rothstein, The Life, Times, and Murder of the Criminal Genius Who Fixed the 1919 World Series. 1920, The Year of the Six Presidents. And 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR. Two tales of politics, betrayal, and unlikely destiny. You can enjoy those interviews in our archives wherever you're listening now, and you can find our guest at davidpetrusha.com. He's also on Twitter and Facebook. Okay, now that we've handed the keys to the time machine over to a man who really knows his way around the past, let's join David Petrusha and go to the days of his youth that are too long ago. I'm joined by acclaimed author David Petrusha. He's here to discuss his most personal book yet, one I've really been looking forward to. It's titled Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory, A Vanished World. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me. This is our fifth interview. People can see if they're watching via YouTube, all your books behind me that I have had the pleasure of reading and talking to you about. And this is our very first Zoom conversation. Usually we meet up in person. Yeah, we've never we've never done even Zoom on a, on a personal basis. So um, brave new world. <laughs> you open up too long ago with the line, I was born, stuff happened before then. So they tell me, and it struck me very much in your voice. And your voice is something that comes through very clearly, even in your non-memoir work, even in your works on history, if you're talking about a Calvin Coolidge, let's say. And when we talked about 1920, the year of the six presidents up at the FDR library, I likened your editorial quips to Alan Hale Jr., the skipper from Gilligan's Island and the way that 
he always would break the fourth wall. He would look into the camera and he would just have that look on his face. And can you believe what is going on right now? And I always enjoyed that. And I enjoy it about your writing because I'm getting more than just the voice of Coolidge or here's what happened at this time. And here you decided to tackle a book that's all in your voice. Your voice is front and center. It's your story, not Coolidge's story or uh, Theodore Roosevelt's story. How was writing a memoir different from these books that people can see behind me that talked about people that were long ago that weren't going to call you and complain, but that was your story, things you wanted to say. How was it different? Frightening. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> frightening. And as, as, as you know, I, I didn't want to do the book, did not want to do the book at all. And what happened was a friend of mine had been after me for years, after me for years to do the book. And um, she said, I don't care what you write about. Okay. It's, it's your voice. I want to hear your voice. And I would tell her, over and over again, no, this is the worst idea I have ever heard in my life. No one is going to want to read this. No one. And, and, you know, and it is too personal, you know, it's, it's not writing about some historical figure that, you know, has been dead for a long time. And I really enjoy writing about dead people because they can't sue you. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, but even when I write about the, the people that, are in this book who may be deceased they still have friends they still have relatives walking around some of those relatives are my relatives okay <laughs> and you're not sure how that's gonna go around and and i did face the same issue that i did with uh the other books is should i tell this how far do i go with this i i in that initial packet or uh, portion of the book that you read, the first few sentences, a few sentences afterwards, I, I, I sort of declaim that uh, I have an alibi for everything that happened beforehand of my birth, <laughs> but that for the things that happened afterwards, I, I may be guilty of, and I take the Fifth Amendment. So this is not a tell-all book. It's not a tell-all book about me, nor about, nor about my antecedents. Because there, there is a commandment that says, honor thy father and thy mother. Okay. There are some things which are not in this book. But it's not unalloyed nostalgia. It's, it's bad things happen. And, and there, there's a balance of that in life where, yes, there, there was a sense of community uh, there were stronger traditions and an adhesion of, 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 of family and ethnicity. And, and, but there were, there were also terrible things happening to people. It occurred to me the other day, in the book I, I mentioned, a couple of things that happened on, on J Street, which was the street over from where I was growing up until I was about 10, and then I moved to. And in the book, you, I mentioned that one of, one of the first shocks of, of real death was that one of my classmates' father, a barber, died. He was only 60, and, and it, 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 he was a close friend of mine, and, and this, this hit me kind of hard. And then another classmate's brother, J. 
just fell playing on the sidewalk. I think he was 10, 12 years old, Bobby Satursky. And they took him to see the doctor. He came home and at nine or 10, 10 o'clock that night, he just died. And they lived like, you know, across the intersection from each other, basically. And then I thought recently that another classmate's father on that two block street died when I was in grade school. Times were tough then. There, there's all these incidents of people just falling and, and becoming either, you know, addled or blind or dying. Um, and, and certainly up until the 1950s, that, that great fear of every mother in America, polio. And then we got a vaccine and things got, got a hell of a lot better. So life was rough. There was a great depression for these people. There, was, there were lousy times in the old country, lousy times in the new country, but, but they surmounted. They surmounted that thing. They, they survived. You talk about things that you don't mention, and it made me think of Theodore Roosevelt's wife, Edith, and how she felt that a woman should only be in the newspaper three times. She should be there for her birth, her engagement, and her obituary. And so those are things that in all caps, we do not talk about. And that's part of this vanished world. When I'm going back and I'm reading too long ago, I think today everyone is such an exhibitionist. We have things all about us all over online on social media where there are things that you wrote it down. And then even though people were long gone, you said, I, I just can't tell that because I can hear their voice in my head saying, no, David, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, there, there's one thing absolutely which i have revealed not only not revealed in this book but to, to other people which would be very uh, painful and very private and very horrible which happened to one of my family uh, members my maternal grandparents their history was not all wonderful i'm sure um that they would they would not want some things reported my grandfather, my mother's father, was um, quite the alcoholic, was not able to raise his family during the Great Depression. Um, and, and so my mother was literally farmed out to uh, her uncle, my father's brother, uh, to a dairy farm outside of, of Amsterdam, New York. Another sister, her sister, was uh, sent to live in Detroit, Michigan, uh, with with uh, another uncle. And so, um, you know, he was not exactly a great success, even though that side of the family did did very well and was surprisingly middle class. But that one, <laughs> that one group of the family tree, which which I was descended from, not so good right there. And then uh, because of the stress of her husband's alcohol alcoholism, his unemployment, his inability to raise the family, and uh, her son being drafted, wounded at Anzio during the World War II, um, and also being raped. Gosh. Um, she went insane. And so even though she was the only one of my grandparents that I ever knew because the other three died either before I was born or when I was like two or three years old, I never really knew her. 
because she was so addled. And uh, not only was she addled, but she was addled in Polish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> why, why she was addled in Polish, I don't know, because she was born here. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, such is the mysteries of the, of the human mind. Um, and so, you know, those things, I, I don't know if they would have uh, been thrilled that I, that I put them in. Some of the curtain we were pulling back on and others, others were, we're going, we're, we are going to leave. And like I say, certainly about myself. <laughs> well, that's what people like to hear. And you do tell some pretty honest stuff here, but it's just interesting that you are that voice for us. And people love that in a memoir. I think of the TV show, The Wonder Years, or the book's been compared to A Christmas Story by Gene Shepard. I wanted to mention the cover of Too Long Ago because that's you as a kid. Look at you, you're beaming from ear to ear. You're holding your uncle's hand. And some might've thought that the cover would be you as a young strapping baseball player on your way to the major leagues, because that's why I'm wearing a Yankees hat today in honor of all your baseball work. But no, in fact, you're, you're there in a spot and that plays such a prominent role in the book. And I think when we look at it, we say, hmm, that's an interesting place. We can see the Coke machine behind you and all the things that it promises if we stepped inside. Tell us what pivotal moment you would want people to see when they time traveled back with you into that picture and see young David meet him. Ha ha. Well, you know, I was thinking one thing which would, which would intrigue me as to, as to, uh, would be, you know, being the, the presidential historian. And I know some of the early moments which were significant in that, you know, when, uh, when my Aunt Pearl gave me the pictorial history of the American presidents. And you can see this was not a book that was, you know, just given and never read. This thing was read a million times. But what caused me to already be so fanatical that you would give this to an eight-year-old, seven or eight-year-old kid? Okay, what went beyond that? And I think what was a factor in that was, and I may be not answering your question, but one of the keys to being an interviewee is not to answer questions, <laughs> is, but to digress charmingly, uh, <laughs> is, is that culture was not ghettoized so much, okay? So you had things like on the variety shows where you would get all the Broadway shows and, and production numbers and great songs, which were coming out then, you know, th this was not like, I mean, can anyone, can any ordinary person hum a tune from Hamilton? I don't think so, but you knew all the songs from all, all the shows and you watched them on, on like the Ed Sullivan show and, and, and they were played on the top 40 stations, et cetera, et cetera. So you got that even operas and the great tenors would be on, on shows on prime time broadcasting, not on PBS or YouTube or something you had to go to. And also you had shows like, uh, the 20th century, a documentary that was on every week, or You Are There, which was a, a recreation 
uh, of historical events. Um, and Victory at Sea, Project 20, which was on, on NBC with Alexander Scorby as a narrator. What a voice he had. A Greek! <laughs> Thanks. Alexander Scorby was a Greek. Okay. Yeah, I picked that up from the name, right? Yeah, never be. had, <laughs> never had much of an acting career. Look, you know, look him up. And he's like, Mr. <laughs> Obscurity as an actor. But boy, could he narrate. And uh and and the editing of these things. I mean, some of the documentaries you see nowadays are like a bit ponderous. But but these things, bang, zoom. So how could you not love uh uh, uh, history, but to kind of understand where I, I came from, I think you have to go to the church, uh, and and how crazy religious the Polish people are uh, to this day, really. Um, and so uh, we are uh, just bound up. In, in our Catholicism. And, and that really helped keep us together, keep us together uh, during the years of occupation under the, the partitions of Poland, the invasions of, of, the, of the Nazis, the subjugation by the, the Soviets, um, and here, and here as well. And, 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 you know, that the experience, the, the immigrant experience, you know, I, I was, I was thinking of making one of these memes or memes or something of, of, you, you know, like you don't have to be Jewish. Remember the, the rye bread ad, sure. you know, like, you know, one of those people in the ad holding up too you know, or have it in front of them too long ago, you don't have to be Polish to love this book. <laughs> the experience speaks to a whole bunch of people you know, strangers in a strange land and how, how they make, make their way. It makes me think of when I did an event with Eva Stachniak at the Kashkushko Center in Manhattan and asked for the first question of the audience and the fellow said, why aren't you speaking Polish? That's something that plays such a role in your life as you just mentioned. And you talk about that in the book. You say, for instance, in the Great War, World War One, that Poles made up 4% of the U.S. population, and yet they accounted for 12% of the war dead. So three times as many. They were very overrepresented there, to use a modern term. And those conflicts cast such a shadow, and you don't know it, but you're growing up in that shadow. Tell us what that meant for you. What, what are some of the things that you learned growing up that maybe... I just proved your point there that you don't have to be Polish to love this book. Somebody like myself who's reading it from a different generation and from a different ethnic background, I say, oh, yes, I, I remember the same thing or the same kind of thing happening to me growing up that stamped me with that Greek identity, Greek Orthodox identity, in your case, a Polish Catholic identity. One of the, one of the phrases to describe uh, the Polish identity is Polish stoicism. And there's a kind of overwhelming feeling that things will go wrong okay don't don't take things for granted i think we're learning that right about now things can go very seriously wrong and and when you when you come from a nation of people that at one time that went very quickly from the largest geographic nation in europe to disappearing and then having to survive for uh, you know 125 or 150 years under foreign domination is is just 
you know, jarring to you, uh, you know, and then, then you come over here and, you know, people are just flummoxed by Polish names. Well, the whole Polish, <laughs> the whole Polish language is like that. And, and there, there are very few commonalities, uh, you know, usually der derived from Latin but between the two languages. So, you know, how these people came over and learned to speak English is it must have been just as vexing for them. And remember how inconsistent English is. I mean, for any yeah. immigrant to <laughs> learn it, I mean, you could just think of all the words which are pronounced, you know, you know in different ways and, and just, you know, just it's, it's this mind boggling mix of languages, which, which is, you know, fails the inconsistency test. It's got to be terrible for, for a foreigner. You're just going to work. You're going to come here. You're going to make your place. And you're also going to always cheer for somebody. Like, for instance, uh, I know Banachek whose name is not spelled very Polishly, by the way, with George Papard, which was no, one, one of the- like a, a Czech. Yeah, <laughs> yep, he got it. <laughs> yeah, I read that about it. But people were proud of it. And it was surprising to me to read that, here that's probably written in the late 60s, it airs in 72, I believe. And many of the stories about it written at the time said how this was a breakthrough for Polish people. Here he's a smart, driven detective. People make Polish jokes about him and he always has a ready quip and he's very cool about it, is George Papard. So all of these things you pick up in the book and you you absorb this sense of Polish pride that you would have had at the time that you grew up with and were really steeped in. And that had to be a really good part for you. That had to be really enjoyable to write down things like that Great War stat and tell people, yeah, we were here, we did our bet, we not only became Americans, but we fought and died for America and to keep our identity because America let us do that and someday Poland was gonna be back and we were gonna be able to go there and not be strangers in our own ancestral lands. The um, thing about the uh, uh, people coming over here is, is after, you know, they really appreciated America and they wanted to become Americans. I mean, obviously they held on to their heritage uh, a great deal, but one of the reasons why, and I, I think almost any ethnic group will tell you this, at least of, of my generation, is that my, our parents didn't want you to learn the, the old language. They didn't want you to, to be kind of saddled with this, but more personally, and this was said to me, this was told to me straight out, and, and I heard this from other people as well, they wanted to talk behind our back. I was thinking <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> they, they, didn't, they didn't want us to know stuff. So a lot of stuff I don't know, uh, there's, there's a reason why that, that is. <laughs> pick up just enough they use they use greek the same way believe me and then and then you meet people and they say well your polish isn't very good or your greek isn't very good and growing up you did have to you had to go to school with kids that were from other backgrounds so it's not as if you can just go around speaking polish your whole life and stick in that enclave and for your father with the place that he would have done that wouldn't have been school but he works in that factory they call amsterdam the rug city very few of us anymore work in factories that is a vanished world. So what did it mean to you growing up in Amsterdam? What did it mean to the town? Well, you, you, all up and down the East Coast, or I imagine, you know, the rest of the country as well, you, you, you have these mill towns. 
And Amsterdam was founded really because of a creek. The, it's on the Mohawk River, um, but it's also more significantly on the Chuktanunga Creek, an old Indian name. And um, like a 400 foot drop from the top of the city down to the river. And it's a very powerful creek and people would build mills along it, okay, to, to power them. And so you'd get the carpet mills and there were two big companies. Ultimately, by the time I was, came around, there had been a third one, but that merged with Mohawk carpets. And then there were other things like a broom factory, pearl buttons, they made long underwear. And think about all these industries. Eventually they got sort of outmoded. You know, people got linoleum, they got carpet tile, they got cheaper, they got cheaper carpets. They got carpets from abroad, okay? Tariffs, tariffs played a, a part in in taking these, these industries down. Brooms, well, they invented vacuum cleaners. Long underwear, you had central heating and people didn't wear it as much. Pearl buttons, they invented zippers. So we invested our, our uh, activities in basically all the wrong things. We were not Silicon Valley. I mean, we were at one point, but then the times changed. And this happened all the way uh, up and down upstate New York. Uh, Rochester had, you know, IBM and Xerox machines and Kodak and Bang Zoom gone. Binghamton had a lot of shoe factories and these, these were went offshore. So Amsterdam and upstate New York went, you know, downhill, downhill fast. And I, I, I say that the, the rust first appeared on the rust belt. I think in Amsterdam, New York. And what happened is in January, 1955, the larger of the two carpet mills said, we're out of here, we're out of here. Um, and there was a big strike the year before, which was I think the last straw. You also find out that the war, the war had an impact. Wars have these crazy impacts on things. You know, it's not just Rosie the Riveter or the Black migration from the South to the North, et cetera, et cetera. There's also little things where in um, World War II, they stopped carpet production in Amsterdam. They stopped carpet production anywhere because, damn it, we've got a war to win. We're going to make yeah. stuff for the Army and the Air Corps and the Navy. And that's what they did in Amsterdam. And so they couldn't even get wool. So when war breaks out in Korea, Bigelow Sanford buys up all this incredibly expensive yeah. Australian wool. Yeah. And then the government doesn't do a damn thing to, to stop anyone from buying wool. There's no government controls messing everything up. And they're stuck with all this expensive wool, which means they have to make expensive carpets, which can't compete with people. And so their, their profits go in the toilet for a couple of years and into real losses and which leads to, to things being being terrible and the carpet mills going out of business or the first one leaving town in January 1955. Fighting the last My father year. was thrown out of work. He worked at Bigelow Sanford 
And one of my earlier, earliest childhood memories, and I really believe my first overnight childhood trip was to Thompsonville, Connecticut, which was the headquarters of Bigelow Sanford and where some of the jobs were transferred to, but not his. And we went down there, we stayed into a little motel and we watched Sergeant Bill go on TV and ate cheeseburgers at some little restaurant. And my father walked up to the gates of Bigelow Sanford to see where his job went. And then we got in the car and drove back home. Not, not a good beginning to the second half of the so-called prosperous 1950s. But before that time, before that time, thousands and thousands of people worked in the carpet mills and really, it was a prosperous time and a prosperous city. Uh, I think even in the Depression, there was a, a certain degree of stability, even though, you know, carpets were, you know, a luxury. You know, you, you didn't need to buy a new one if you were out of, out of work or, or worrying about being out of work. Um, so uh, it, it, was a, it was a way of life. And I'll tell you, even after the carpet mills started to move out and we still had Mohasco, Mohawk carpet mills for a while, we may not have been rich, but damn it, we had the best carpets in the world in our homes. <laughs> we got quite the discount. You probably knew who made them. I mean, uh, we knew personally who made them. We <laughs> And my father was an inspector, so he'd know what right. the best ones were. <laughs> he'd be able to look right at it and tell what was. I'm not quite what sure up, I went right? into inspecting carpets, though. I, I don't know. <laughs> we have a picture. That to me. Right? We have yeah, a picture. Of I do. Right work. Yeah. yeah we'll show that for people watching on YouTube. And we also have some videos from your dad, which is. They're so precious. And I think that's another difference from today and this vanished world into long ago is we're just used to it. I mean, kids grow up now with every minute of their life, certainly every significant one being videotaped. I have a friend and his daughter was maybe six and he was telling her a story from the old days, meaning maybe 1994, maybe the 80s. And uh, she said, oh, show me the video. And he said, well, no, we didn't, we didn't have a video camera on our phone. We didn't even carry our phone around in those days. We just had to remember things in our brain <laughs> and then tell people later what happened. So, but they just expect to see this multimedia experience because that's what they've grown up with. And for you, this is so precious. You're able to illustrate your book and I'm able to therefore do it today with not only pictures, but video. That camera must've been a purchase from before the, boom times ended before the rust started, I would think, because those things weren't cheap back then, not to mention not very light. Well, no. And the film and getting it developed was, yeah. there's very little of it. I think there's all, all of a, a half hour that we have, which may be the, all that was ever shot. And, and you would shoot just a few seconds of where you were. And so you might not finish that maybe six eight minute reel of film to take it into the pharmacy and get it developed for months and months or maybe a year it's a it's a really a totally different experience than well look part of the book is to recount things for people who remember them 
to say, oh, yes, I, I recall that. And, and we did something very similar. Okay, blah, 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 blah. But also to explain to the younger generation today or the generations to come, if, if anyone reads it, you know, what those things were like and to understand what, you know, what hardships people had and to realize how blessed we are right now. You know, at one point I, I go into some rant about how dirty things were. You know, you never wanted to drive behind a bus. I mean, has that occurred to anyone now? No, no, it's just, you know, we get stuck in traffic behind a bus and we yell and we shake our fists at it. You're like, get out of my way. But but there's no, there's nothing belching out the back like there used to be. And the air is is certainly much cleaner. And one of the things about the carpet mills and the Chuktanunga Creek and where I live is the creek came very close to, to where I lived. And depending on what color they were dyeing the carpets at Mohawk Carpet Mills each day, that would be the color of the Chuktanunga Creek, red, orange, purple, yellow, you know, and then that would flow into the Mohawk River, which was holy cow. Nelson Rockefeller may not have been the most wonderful guy in the world, but he did a lot to clean up clean up that river because it was it was grotesque and and interestingly enough the new the state of new york had been warning amsterdam to 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 clean up its sewage something about like in 1912 people knew this this was a problem and nothing was done until the 1960s but you know it has been done and, and another thing you know, mucking up the atmosphere, which I don't think people have to deal with, I hope people don't have to deal with as much today, is smoking. People like to smoke like, people smoked like chimneys back then. And um, I can, you know, we used to have to paint the interior of, of 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 our, the walls of our apartment, our flat, you know, every few years because they were so coated with nicotine. And I don't, I don't think most people would, would, people would be amazed to hear that today, young people. Maybe if, if their parents really smoke so much, but I think a lot of them don't. And, and think of what was going in, into people's lungs back then. We certainly have health problems now, but, but I mean, hopefully we're, we're past that great rush of, of, of cancer that came from, from that poisonous substance. That's definitely something you can go back and say, well, that's interesting. It's a different place. It's just like traveling. That's what history is in a way. Travel to a place you will never be able to go. So speaking of traveling, I want to get back to that. Tell us about this place because it plays a special part. The place on the cover of your book with young David there beaming from ear to ear, smiling. What was that place? What did it mean to you growing up in this slice of the world? That is the back of the bar of uh, A. Lancheski's Bar and Grill, uh, which uh, the fellow who is standing there, someone said, that's your father, right? No, wrong. (laughs) That is my mother's uncle, Tony. And after my mother was farmed out to Herman Marek's dairy farm out in the the sticks, she came back to Amsterdam to live with her um, aunt Anna and her husband, Tony. And they, they ran this place and uh, opened it up as a, as a 
uh, actually like a real restaurant. And there was a dance floor on it and booths in the back in the 1930s. Uh, now, by the time I came around in the 50s, the times were the times were a change even then. And the place was kind of running down. But as, as you can see, um, people have commented about my unusual formality in dress. <laughs> and, and I think you might see here where that comes from that uh, Tony was, uh, uh, you know, was not your average looking uh, ethnic bartender back then. And that, that was his normal attire. He would, he would always dress up. So he gave you a certain standard to go by. And, and you'd, get, you'd get the denizens of this place going in. So you, you learn from them about the old days, you know, the oral history um, of, of what they went through and you learn to, you learn to respect your elders. Okay. You know, don't offend the customers, <laughs> but also they, they were, they were great to me. You know, they were like a sort of extended family. Not that I did not have an extended family back then, but you know, you'd, you'd have, uh, You'd have the retired fireman who would, would come in. You would have uh, the most uh, interesting guy was a fellow named Cousin George Casabone. And what Casabone would, the most interesting thing he would, he would do was he would come in from the countryside. And he was a real banty rooster of a guy. And he would come in and, and play the fiddle, you know, in the bar room. And I don't know how many bar rooms he came in and did this, but he certainly did this with ours. And he would douse for water. He'd get this this stick out, and he would he would you know it would go down. He could he could find where where water was underground, and he could predict the weather. And his his he would be you know written up in not just the local papers but the regional papers. And and one day we had a we had a massive one summer, we had a massive drought. And he went in and said, you know, Monday, there's, it's going to break. You're going to get a big, big downpour. And I was, I was downtown in the library hanging out because, well, there were books there. <laughs> there were books there. And because, again, there was no air conditioning, boys and girls. So in the middle of a drought or even in the middle of the summer, you wanted someplace that was cool, which the library was. So I'm coming back from uh, walking home from that library that day. And lo and behold, the skies open and going back up to my home, I felt going up uh, one of the many, many hills of Amsterdam. I was like a salmon going upstream. There was so much water coming down at me. So cousin George Casabone was, was quite the, uh, quite the character, even though he wasn't my cousin. <laughs> You're enjoying my conversation with David Petrusha about his memoir, Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory of Vanished World. Follow him at dpetrusha on Twitter or find him at davidpetrusha.com. Book Life writes, quote, Petrusha's storytelling skills carry the day. Anyone who has ever thought longingly about days gone by in picture-perfect small towns will devour these enjoyable reminiscences. They call too long ago a strikingly nostalgic look at the up and down fortunes of an evolving town in the 20th century, sure to entice those who long for the good old days. Now, I wanted to mention that, of course, this is not just 
the good old days. This is not a book just for people who grew up in the Eisenhower years, let's say, or people who are familiar with this corner of Amsterdam, this corner of New York State, upstate New York tends to get overlooked then as now. It's a book really for everybody, so I think. I mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy spending time with you and I would encourage people to do so if they can, but if you can't, picking up this book is the next best thing. So make your pitch to those people, even if they're not from upstate New York anywhere, I know those people will like the book. So what about other people? What are they telling you? What are you hearing from them where they say things maybe like I did and I say, oh, hey, I identified with this book even though I'm not from there or from then. Well, I have I have heard from people who are, are not from uh, um, Amsterdam or even specifically my neighborhood and um, and and said, yes, yes. You know, maybe the person was Italian or from Queens. It's like, yeah, this this is what life was like. And I think also without being too immodest, the uh, you know, the way it's told. You know, the story is 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 in the telling. And so some of the material, it's like I was wondering is, well, you know, this material is a bit thin, <laughs> you know, is is this is this going to carry the day with 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 the average reader? And and it's it, it really is with the asides or the insights uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to to make the day. And also that it is, it is that mix of, of the good times or the nostalgic times or the horrible times, the, the tragic times, not just economically, uh, but in terms of, of people's deaths or in, in many cases, you know, multiple deaths. And so you don't play all the notes on the piano at the same time to make the tune or the symphony. And you don't play the same notes in the book or the memoir to like, oh yes, everything was great. And the 324 pages, <laughs> you know, or everything, everything was terrible. And, you know, you just say, oh, this is just, this is a bummer, you know, man, you know, so, so you try to, to create that flow. I, I like to say about my, my prose, what I'm working at is to make it sing, to make the words on the page sing. And I, I hope I've done that here. Speaking of singing and music, therefore, your father was a drummer. We have some photos that you sent me of your dad drumming. And it occurred to me, I never asked you if you had any musical talent. Did you ever try to pursue it? What did having a father who was a drummer mean to you? Well, um, he did it. He did it part time. There was a, there were, there were so many events back then. So many weddings and, and bars and clubs that, that had live music. People went out more. And so there were a lot of venues where, where he could play from the time he was, was a teenager until the uh, 1950s when, you know, the tastes were changing. Um, he played, uh, you, know, I, you know, some people say, well, I could play 
all both kinds of music country and western you know <laughs> well he could play three kinds he could he can pull he could play polkas or barracks and mazurics okay <laughs> but once once the, the the fashions came in and you see this with a lot of 1940s movies a real fascination with that kind of cuban latin beat you know and when that got popular he it just he just didn't care for it it just couldn't play it I don't think he really disliked listening to it, but polkas were in his blood. And also, <laughs> I think, you know, um, you know, you get a little older, you got the day job in the carpet mill, as long as that lasted. And so, you know, dragging yourself into work at seven or eight o'clock in the morning after you've been uh, setting things up was, uh, you know, or taking things down in, in the Polish National Alliance Hall or St. John's Hall or the do drop in, um, you know, tough, tough going. One of the things he, he did complain about was, you know, Carrying these drums around is a pain. He he so admired or so envied the clarinet player. You just take that thing on your arm and you go <laughs> yeah. home. But um, in terms of my musical abilities, like none. Now he never pu pushed it on me. Never pushed it on me. Never pushed anything really on me, whether sports or you know anything. I was sort of left to to my own devices and prejudices and and my own interests, which I. Which, looking back at it, I find I find very remarkable. Or maybe I was just too stubborn <laughs> to do anything I wasn't interested <laughs> in. I don't know. But uh, one one of the things was when he got drafted into the uh, army in World War II. At one point, uh, you know, he he volunteered or got I, I must have volunteered to go into a military band. And then at the last minute, he decided not to, and he got out of it. And that band was sent into the South Pacific, and the plane crashed, and everyone on it was killed. So, wow. you know, things can, right. you know, it's like, it's like, what if you were at that intersection just a, uh, you know, a few minutes earlier? You could have, that tractor trailer could have got you. Uh, life is, life is so, so fragile. And then where would I be? I ask you, where would I be? Where would this interview be? Um, yeah. So, um, uh, no, I, I, you know, I, I would, I would play around with the drums in the living room and a beautiful pearl set. I don't know what happened to those. They were in his attic before he died. And then somehow they, you know, they, they were not there. And then there would be strange little things you around the house, like uh, an ocarina. You remember the ocarinas? Wow. Not wow. the Macarena, <laughs> but there was an instrument called the, it was called a sweet potato. And we had one of those. It was made out of like Bakelite, the stuff that old telephone, the stuff that old oh. telephones were made out of. Remember those? <laughs> Man, wow. you could, you could, you could hit them with a hammer and they wouldn't break. Yeah. It's ruined movies now. Cause you used to be able to really slam those things down or every now and then there'd be a Humphrey Bogart song would hit someone with a phone. Now, I mean, Oh, I yeah. phone here. I mean, this is, I can't slam this down and it's not very satisfying at all. I, I could hit someone with it, but I don't think it'll do. It's Kill not the same, you know, going right? like this after an angry call with Mr. Spacely is not. <laughs> here's a, here's another fun fact, which I was startled to learn. Amsterdam didn't get direct dial until 1954. Yeah. Party Up lines. until that point, you know, you were still going through the operator. 
not to mention all the all the the party lines people had yeah. which uh, talk about uh, stories that people didn't want shared <laughs> if somebody was listening in they got shared yeah everyone can hear your call if they pick up that extension and i could think of all your neighbors being in your house maybe i, I don't even know if young people today could really relate to a scenario but Think about if you had to share maybe your email address with all your neighbors, maybe that's the closest thing we have today. And I do like that in too long ago, you stop and explain those things. And in such a way that people don't feel like myself, who knows what a party line is, I don't feel like, oh, why, why is he telling me this? It's always interesting. That's part of that making the words sing. And maybe that's one of the reasons why people were so much closer back then as a community, because you'd have to know your neighbors because you might pick up the phone and they were getting some awful news or giving some awful news. Well, they, they'd also help you out. They'd also help you out. Um, when things went bad and the carpet mills moved out and my parents were unemployed, um, you know, how do you pay the rent? Well, it was because we lived with relatives and, you know, that went on the, on the pad for a while you know we we our credit was good our credit with the grocer the saturskis up the street uh, was good you know and that was one of those stores where they were where they would uh, write the uh, prices with a pencil on a paper bag <laughs> you know and um and and so they they would trust you as as well you 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 depended on these people uh, for help more more than you you would today now you don't even know your neighbors you don't know who they who they are you don't know who their names are um and and back then well one of the things about the immigrant experience and i'm sure with any immigrant group to this day is that one guy comes over from the old country and then before you know it, his brother comes over and then he brings his, his mother and father and his sister over. And he brings over his cousins, who is Gilbert and Sullivan wrote, whom he numbers by the dozens. And before you know it, there's this, this group of people, whether it's Colombians in Queens nowadays or Vietnamese in, in Minnesota or Poles in Amsterdam, who largely came from you know, two little village in, villages in southern Austria. That's, by the way, they're, they're uh, or southern Poland. They're all pretty much from the Austrian Habsburg ruled Poland in, in Amsterdam. There are, there are some, but, but mostly from those two villages. And, and in Amsterdam as well, the Italians, they come from two separate villages, one from the north of Naples, one from the south of Naples. And not only, and, and they come and they settle in either the West End, if they're from the one village or the South side from the other. So you could sort, and, and they're related. They're, they're related and they know each other from the old country, which is one reason why they are so close knit for a generation or two in the new country. So when I'm a kid, I'm always going to wakes. Because, well, my, my parents may have worked with some family member of the deceased in, in the mills, or you knew them from up the street, or with great frequency, you were related, you were shirt-tailed relatives or in-laws of, of, of hundreds and hundreds of people. 
uh, back then. But I, you know, on my street here, uh, I don't know. I don't know. They're <laughs> certainly not my relatives. When you first decided to work on this book that became too long ago, well, you didn't really decide. You got you got pushed and encouraged. I got beat up. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to well, use the word no, mad. I, but... I, I resisted. I resisted. <laughs> yeah. But you had a realization, and that was the stories die with you. We'd want to know the story, for instance, of a picture you sent me. You as a, a young man when you were writing baseball with Jackie Robinson. You know, if that picture just gets found on the side of a road, we don't know the story of it. Or if it gets found in somebody's attic, then people don't know who those people are. And you say, I wonder what that story was. Whose wedding was this? Who are these people? What was the most rewarding thing about writing this to you? Maybe something that even after all your publishing experience surprised you at the end and surprised you in what you're hearing from people who read it. Boy, I, I, I was amazed. I'm still amazed by the reaction I'm getting that so many people were able to relate to, you know, you're, you're putting stuff in. And, and you're talking about this one little lunch counter that uh, um, meant something to you. And then you find out that, you know, that reference speaks to so many people. And it, you know, it's, it, it speaks, I put it in also because of the, of the um, stability of pricing, which went on back then. Right. And, and I use that to, to illustrate that, but, but it also, it, 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 it really, I think, brightened a lot of, of people's days who, who, who recalled that. But I know at least one person who has started to write their memoirs because of this book. And he was involved in the recording industry and knew a lot of like, you know, people you would, you would know, you know, recording artists and, and worked at, I think, the Village Voice. You know, it's which on the face of it sounds a lot more interesting than, you know, <laughs> what I did. And so but but he hadn't started to do it. And and the thing about the, uh, uh, the decision to write the book and, and you know, and, and my excuses not to do it would be the same excuse as everyone else. Well, who wants to hear this? Well, at some point, the stories do die. So two Januarys ago when my friend made her, her last attempt to convince me and I just said no I'm not gonna do it not gonna do it uh, within weeks of that a very very close friend of mine was hit by a massive stroke and then died about a week later without recovering consciousness and we were partners in crime in a lot of stuff politically and shared, so many of the cultural references that that you know uh, the music the the shows the uh, uh the movies uh all of that stuff and uh, i was just thinking you know this the, how many stories that he he would have had to tell are now lost lost and you know so i said the stories die with you the stories will die with me unless I write them down. So I thought, I thought that um, I'd be able to do maybe 20,000 words and that would get my friend off my, my living friend <laughs> off my back and, and just maybe publish this little thing and take it as far as, as, you know, going off to, to college. 
And within three months, I had 70,000 words. Now, some of those words got taken out eventually. And then, <laughs> and then I played with it and figured out how to publish it and all this. And, and eventually it came out to about 80,000 words. Now, part of that was, was my own recollections. And then other parts were stuff I, I found poking through newspaper archives online, some books I, I ordered, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, talking to other people, talking to, to a handful of other people, fleshing things out, adding new stories. Um, so, but, you know, you can, you can do this at home, folks, and, and have fun with it. Have fun with it because it can be fun. And, and how many, you know, I think we all regret not asking our relatives more stuff and not asking our elders more stuff. Like, who is in that picture? You know, how did you two meet? I don't know. I, my parents always seem to know each other, but you know, how, how it all came about, I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure. I guess they were in grade school together for a while, um, but, but who knows? I mean, there are a lot of things which are just completely mystery, complete mysteries to me, and I'll, I'll never know. Um, so, you know, it's the same way with, with every, every family, and I guess you, you owe it to your descendants or, or to your community to try to preserve these things. You know, one, a, a, a TV series I worked on, providing uh, interviews commentary for was I think called baseball's golden age. It was narrated by Alec Baldwin. Why? Well, yes, I have worked with Alec Baldwin. <laughs> Not really, but, but on the same pro project. And what they did was they took people's home movies of, of old baseball games. And the fascinating thing about that series, I recommend people go to it if they're baseball fans is you see the same sort of films from uh, or, uh, from baseball history over and over again. And, and there are things which are not recorded by the professional newsreel and, and network guys. It's the straight on action. But do you really know what the background of Braves field looked like or the people walking around? Do you... Do you know what the concession stand looked like at Shea Stadium now? No, because it's like, oh, it's not important. Okay. But these people taking home movies would film all this junk <laughs> and preserve it. Okay. And, and so this is the stuff which would ordinarily be lost. So fill in those little details which were too little for the big guys to look at and write about. Oh, Edith, Edith Roosevelt. Okay. And saying that, uh, you know, a woman should only be in the papers three times, etc. One of the fascinating things about at least the, the small town newspaper in my small town was that, were you looking for Edith? I am indeed. I yes. So people wouldn't know. I'm sorry to. That's okay. I switched that off so people wouldn't see me doing it. But yep, see, this is where I got the reference. So that's a good book. <laughs> that's a good book, and uh, I think it's better than all, than the other Morris books on, on the Roosevelt's. Really? Yeah, this is his wife, right? That's his wife. Uh, that's a terrific yeah, book. I agree. It is better. 
And uh, so with Edith says, there only should be three things in the paper about a woman. Well, in these small town papers, there are all these crazy details. You know, we, we were not exactly high society. But if there was a there, if there was a party held in somebody's home for somebody's name day, I'm not talking about birthday. I'm talking about name day. Yeah, we if, have those too. Right. If <laughs> it's more were, than your birthday. <laughs> if you were named Stephen, you know, you were you celebrated St. Stephen's Day. Okay, I got gypped. I got chipped because I was named after David and there's no St. David's day as far as I know. Okay. But you know, they would name all the people attending this, this little party or a sorority party above a Lancheski's bar and grill. When my mother was living there, you know, in high school, who the pallbearers were, who the out of town people were, who came for the funeral when someone, Oh, now because of HIPAA, who checked into a hospital, okay? Uh, all of those things were preserved in these, these little little hometown papers, which is a treasure trove of, of, of detail for me. Uh, you know, some of the stuff I, I didn't want to find out about, but, but I did, and some of that stuff I passed on. So many of those things are in here. For instance, your mother, there's a photo of your mother in a wedding dress that is something. I also discovered that there is Benedict Arnold there, buried there. He's not the Benedict Arnold you're thinking of, but you have your own Benedict Arnold. And not just a guy sharing that name, but an interesting story and an interesting and accomplished fellow in his own right. Plus, people will be able to learn who or what Gomozo is. Sounds like someone Godzilla would fight, but it is not. I can tell you that much. But there are so many memorable stories and characters in Too Long Ago. There are lessons, for instance, always carry a guitar when you're driving in a car with somebody in case you get pulled over, which doesn't sound like it makes any sense. But once people hear the story in your book, it makes, well, not that much more sense, actually. It's still a very strange story, but it's your story and we can enjoy it here in Too Long Ago. I wanted to close with asking, say you are tempting time travelers. They're on their way back to 1932 Berlin to kill Hitler. And you say, hey, why don't you stop on your way and say 1957 Amsterdam and stop there and check out the town. Who would you tell those time travelers they absolutely have to meet? Where would you tell them that they ab absolutely have to go to experience this vanished world? <laughs> A bookie joint. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't talked about gambling in Amsterdam <laughs> and how pervasive how absolutely pervasive uh, it was among the working class and the big, and it, it basically got put out of business by state-run lotteries. New York Lotto, all you need is a dollar and a dream. You know, the government moves in and, and uh, you know, shoves people aside, you know, don't mess with our racket now. Before we said this was immoral and terrible, <laughs> yeah. the tax on the poor and caused and ruined your character. But now it's for education. Yeah. It's Where for <laughs> it's for the children. Yeah. Okay. It's these things are all connected. But in gambling, the money back then did not go for education. It went 
it went well, it might if you didn't pay up <laughs> well most of most of it was pretty small scale and penny ante i mean they would have some games in the back room which i which i heard you know a bunch of money was was changed hands but but the you know they they kind of made it up in volume with literally nickel and dime and well diamond quarter bets at least for my family so you'd bet you know, you'd bet a quarter on a straight hit. And, oh, maybe people don't understand how the numbers worked. Okay. Another thing you have to explain to a younger generation. And the pegboard. Another the thing. pegboard. Yeah, the pegboard. You'd have this little thing and you'd, and you'd have all these little pieces of paper and a board and you'd pull one out and maybe you'd win something. Uh, but the numbers, it was based on what the payoffs would be at a given track in given races. And, and it's a three number, uh, three digit number. What that number was, the odds, of course, would be 991, 99 to one. And they only pay off at about five or 600 to one. So you'd bet straight if that number came in and you'd get the five hundred or you know uh whatever and then a box hit would be if if those three numbers came in in any sequence and you'd you'd, you'd hedge your bets and and bet a dime on that and and of course oh, growing up in amsterdam we're very near to saratoga so the big the big social events of the year sort of would be to to get in the car and and get to Saratoga in a in a mad race to to lose your money really. <laughs> That's Benedict Arnold maybe I mentioned your local Benedict Arnold that was his big battle not your Benedict Arnold but the Benedict Arnold that was his big yes. win in the revolution. So my yeah. parents would always take me to historic sites. Uh -huh. you know, part of part of my historic education was you know, living in upstate New York and having parents who would pack me in the car on a Sunday or a Saturday and take me at my request to, to all of these things like the Saratoga battlefield, you know, three, um, three, three umpires, here's the baseball reference, <laughs> three empires come together where, where I come from upstate, the Dutch, the British and the French. And a lot of massacres going on between those fires, <laughs> but you you know you can learn a lot, and then you go down down river to you know Hyde Park or or to Grant's Cottage where Grant uh, U S Grant died in uh, in Wilton outside of Saratoga. So all of those things, but the the gambling was uh, you know I would uh, as I would say run numbers not for a a bookie. But for my parents, and they would send me off to uh, to one of these little joints, a a grocery store. Usually, they would be in things called a confectionery. If you saw the word confectionery, you know, with these these shelves which were all <laughs> empty, and you know, people going in all day and not buying anything. Well, you know, you you didn't have to be Columbo to figure out what the hell was going on there. Or Banachek. Banachek. No, you know, <laughs> right. You live in Banachek. So but the uh, gambling was the big, the big thing. Um, one of the, uh, in terms of, of the guitar story, um, <laughs> even though there were an unusual number of bars and liquor licenses in the town, a huge amount of drinking, one of the, one of the great sociologists of our time studied Amsterdam and crime there, James Q. Wilson. 
now we're going to some real history now. James Q. Wilson developed the broken window theory, which Giuliani used to fix New York City. Hey, remember when New York City was fixed and not broken like it is now? <laughs> okay, <laughs> times change. Well, Amsterdam used the other theory, which was not to arrest anyone. So, you know, they, you have all these people wandering around drunk all the time and they would never, ever arrest anyone. So I guess whatever works, works. But not arresting people in New York City does not work. Part of that was because of the church. St. Stanislaus, right? This is where you would have grown up and where you spent yes. some, or did grow up and spent so much of your time. And that is part of that Polish experience that you have in your life. And it's a central part. It's And it's still there, which is nice to see because a lot of this world is vanished that you grew up in. Yeah, it was uh, the, the, the Poles were such a, a large group. And it, well, the look, context, context. The city was 30,000 people at its, its peak. So it's it's not huge, but it's not tiny uh, or wasn't tiny uh, then. And um, so Poles were the largest ethnic group and built two Roman Catholic churches, built a Polish national Catholic church. And then the town itself was at that point, 75% Catholic. And so, you know, kind of a, a, not maybe a unique place, but, but, you know, not Dubuque or anything like that. And, and, and we, there were parochial schools, the school I went to until eighth grade. Oh, um, I posted some pictures online recently on Facebook of the kindergarten class. They were like 50 some kids in that class. And people say, that was one class in one room? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you wonder, you know, you, you second guessers out there wonder why the nuns had to rule with such an iron hand. <laughs> you try it. You try ruling 50 kids in one, one uh, class. And, and then by the time we, got, we graduated in eighth grade, there were still 30 some, maybe 40 uh, kids graduating. So, you know, you had, you had to maintain order and you did. And they taught, you know, every sub subject did it well. Um, that class produced not only myself, okay? <laughs> it produced the United States congressman, okay? You know, and we did it without any big infrastructure. We didn't have a gym. We didn't have this. We didn't have that. We had blackboards. We had chalk. That was about it. We had a we had a small library upstairs and a nurses station, and probably because the government said, you know, you had to to be accredited. But it was it was it was very basic. But you learned stuff, and 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 you took it. You took it very, very seriously. There, was, there wasn't a lot of, you know, loitering around, not at all. But you learned, and and people like, you know, going back to one of my favorite topics. You, you think about Calvin Coolidge learning about stuff in Vermont in in a far more primitive atmosphere, and you know, kids back then were learning Greek and Latin and the classics. 
So even in even in the 1950s, we were backsliding. We were backsliding. We were going downhill. And we weren't learning Polish either. We were we were learning a few prayers, some Christmas carols, uh, but that's about it. But before I came around, my Aunt Jeannie, who was still alive, who was only 13 years older than myself, was telling me she had to make her confessions in Polish. You know, it's like, so, so how do you do that? You like come up to someone and say, um, what's the Polish word for this sin? <laughs> uh, asking for a friend, you know? I can't imagine that. That's tough. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, the commandments, maybe you could just write the numbers down. That would have been. That's right. <laughs> Commandment Yedin. <laughs> Well, David Petrusha, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss Too Long Ago. I really enjoyed the book. I always enjoy your company. And I'm glad that now readers can just pick up this book and they can experience what it's like to sit with you and talk. If you're out of things to watch on TV, you're tired of scrolling through your phones, pick up Too Long Ago, enjoy this book. I really like the idea of being able to go back there and meet young David. He looks like a really happy kid. And so I want to thank you so much for sharing him with me. And I want you to also thank your friend for pushing you into writing this memoir, because I'm sure people are going to read it, enjoy it. And Amsterdam thanks you. Thank you. Again, the book is titled Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory, A Vanished World. Find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode by buying a book through us. You help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to David Petrusha for yet another entertaining conversation about yet another great book. He's such a fun guy to spend time with, and if I could introduce each of you to him personally, I would definitely do that. For now, his video and photographs and our interview, not to mention his book, are the next best thing. If you're a YouTube subscriber, I hope you enjoyed watching this interview today and seeing all those nuggets of the past. Remember to enjoy my conversations with David Petrusha about his previous books. Those are TR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and A Journey of Triumph and Tragedy, Rothstein, The Lifetimes and Murder of the Criminal Genius Who Fixed the 1919 World Series, 1920, the year of the six presidents, and 1932, the rise of Hitler and FDR, two tales of politics, betrayal, and unlikely destiny. Visit our guest at davidpetrusha.com. You can also find him on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can find me at History Dean on Twitter, and I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn, as well as Instagram. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.